Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 148. My name is Urban. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. So there's been a bit of delay between uh, podcasts for, I guess, um, I forget the reasons at this point. It's been so long. They're mostly my fault, to be clear. I was doing a variety of work things, and they kept getting in the way. And so we've been on one of our longer hiatuses of our podcasting career, although not entirely, because we did guest on the Maple Leafs Hot Stove podcast. Yes, that's true. So um, today we're, we're planning on, on bringing back uh, something we tried for the first time last year and had good reception. It's a lot of fun. It's a very kind of off-season thing to do, um, which is perfect for the Leafs because we have lots of off-season time to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's ranking the top 10 U22 players in the NHL. Um, so we'll get into that first, but we would be remiss to not point out uh, and not acknowledge some of the tragic news that happened today in the NHL uh, with the really unfortunate passing of uh, Columbus Blue Jackets goaltender Matisse Kivlinex um, on, over the 4th of July weekend uh, in, in what's been described as essentially a firework accident. Yeah, that's uh, just very so, sad. Yeah, there's, there's really nothing to say aside from the fact that it's really, really, really sad that it must be, you know, a time of really intense and, you know, severe pain for his friends and family and his his teammates and the people who knew him. Uh, and yeah, it's just, you know, our, our, our condol- a small comfort, but yeah, our condolences very much go towards anyone impacted by uh, this really tragic event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, hopefully the rest of the podcast can be a bit lighter, but we did want to, you know, acknowledge that and and we'll, yeah, we'll go from there. So. Uh, as I pointed out, we're ranking the top uh, 10 U21 players, sorry, U22 players in the NHL. The age is as of July 1st, 2021. Uh, so as of a few days ago. And yeah, this is always a fun exercise because, you know, you get to look kind of towards the future, get to see uh, and take stock of the young town that's going to take the league kind of by storm over the next few years. Uh, so I guess the way we'll mostly go about this, we'll talk a bit about the people we have on the fringes at first, and then we'll kind of go through the list in, in reverse order. Uh, the one thing I did want to mention uh, is that I think this is a weaker list than last year's. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, we had Elias Pettersson heading the list last year, um, followed by Andrei Sveshnikov. Pettersson has graduated, and you know Pettersson's a very special player. And so no one of his caliber has emerged. And I think, you know, there are still cool and impressive players on this list. Uh, I wish fewer of them were from the Atlantic Division, but not the Leafs. But I guess you can't have everything in life. But I, yeah, I do think that uh, some very fine players have graduated. Mind you, Patrick yes, Laine K- is gone, and I have no idea what to make of him at this point. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kale McCarr as well, I think, is, is probably... Mm the other really, really big one who's graduated. Like, he, he and Pedersen would have been vying for 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 1-2, basically. Yeah, um, and they're both guys, like, next year, Pedersen could contend for the heart, and Makar could contend for the Norris. I'm not saying that they necessarily will, but it's an entirely believable outcome for both of them. So, th- that's a very high bar. Yeah. Um so this isn't like a bad list, but I think, you know, we, we ha- over the past few years, uh, the the quality of like the really top end young players coming into the league has taken a step back. It's been, I shouldn't say taken a step back, it's returned to more what is normal, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, that 
crazy run of you know Matthews, McDavid, Eichel, Marner, uh, McKinnon coming into the league in relatively quick su- succession. Yeah, I think that that's something that will become clear as we go through this list is that it's just really, really hard to be an effective NHL player as a teenager. And I think sometimes when comparing players to McDavid and Matthews, who are two of the best players of the generation, or McKinnon, but even then McKinnon wasn't what he has since become. Yeah, McKinnon you know, really to uh, exploded that, later. Yeah, to debut this strongly right after your draft year is so difficult. And if we ever had McKinnon on one of these lists uh, post his rookie year, it would be like, oh, is this guy actually shaping up to be all that good, right? He exploded after he turned, like, 22, I think. Yeah, we've mentioned this before, but he seemed to have everything pretty much going for him, except he wasn't a great finisher. And then one year, it just clicked. And then he was amazing because he acquired maybe the most useful skill in hockey um, to, to go with everything he already had. You know, he's an insane skater. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see sort of the, the developing crop of players and how some of them have moved. Um, you know, I think that they're, well, I won't spoil anything, but there's a player who has moved prominently up our list this year. And I think that, you know, having a rough introductory season to the NHL is a big factor in that. Yes. Um, so the way this worked is that you know, Fulman and I both ranked them individually, and then we just averaged the ranks, but we gave more weight to mine because I'm more correct. Um, the system is corrupt. <laughs> no, we, we weighted them 50-50. Uh, so without any further ado, let's get into, let's get into discussing it. So let, we'll, we'll talk quickly about uh, some players who, who just missed, um, mm. who just missed the cut. So these are our ranks 11 through 15. Uh, the way it is, we, we ranked the top 16 players. Uh, or sorry, we ranked the top 15 players and then assigned everyone else a score of 16. Um, with the idea being we're only really going to talk in detail about the top 10, so it's fine. But our 11 to 15 was um, Nils Hoglander of the Canucks, Tim Stutzle of the Senators, Trevor Zegris of the Ducks, Capo Caco of the Rangers, and Rasmus Dahlin of the Sabres. Uh, so are there any immediate thoughts you have about any of these players? Right. Uh, the one that I want to, uh, to make a real point about is actually Tim Stutzle from the Ottawa Senators. Because his stats this year, not very impressive at all. But every time I watched him when we played the Senators, I was like, this guy's going to be a star. And the eye test is prone to being misleading, absolutely. And there are sometimes players who just always look very good and flashy, but don't deliver in a huge way. Jonathan Duran comes to mind. Um, But Tim Stutzla... I strongly suspect is going to be one hell of a hockey player. I actually had him 10th on my list, so I kind of tried to sneak him in there, even though I know that there was, like, not the strongest stats basis. And, you know, I don't go out of my way to do favors for the Ottawa Senators, not a favored team of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I really genuinely just believe that he's going to be good. If we do this in a year, I bet he's on the list. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think I think it's a pretty good bet that he'll be on the list next year, right? I, I, he was not a very good player at, you know, age, I think, 18 for most of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that, that's common. You know, we saw the same thing happen with Capo Caco last year. And, and Caco had a much better year this year. Now, he still didn't make our list. Mm-hmm. Um, but, he, he, you know, from, in his rookie year, Caco was, like, maybe the worst regular player in the NHL. This year, he looked like, you know, just a decent player. 
<laughs> he was not the worst regular player in the NHL. Hooray for progress. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And again, that's a recurring theme that we talk about. It's so hard to come in at 18 or 19 and be effective. And the players who do that are extraordinary. But the players who fail to do that aren't necessarily doomed either. There's a lot of growing that takes place between 18 and 22. And part of the reason we do this list is to kind of keep tabs on these players uh, and know who we might be hearing more about in the years to come. Um, yeah. I was... This was a big disparity between us. It might be the, the biggest one. Is I was quite high on Nils Hoglander, and you were a skeptic. You weren't buying it. You still have the Vancouver Yeah. Games. Yes, yes. I mean... Maybe I should have ranked Hoglander a bit higher. He he looks good, right? Mm-hmm. He he do, he does look good, uh, and his uh, isolated impact by hockey viz is is you know astoundingly good. Actually, it's like, it's very 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 impressive. Um, with Hoglander, I, I guess my my thoughts on him are that I don't fully see the elite upside. I think mm-hmm. he can be a good you know uh, second liner more or less, right? And and maybe this is me being. You know, normally I, I default really to trusting the stats, but I did actually get to watch a lot of Vancouver this year, and I thought Hoglander was good, but yeah, I just didn't really see the elite upside. I think uh, the uh, all-in-one stats or like the play-driving stats might not totally be capturing his usage, which I think was you know uh, a little bit friendly, as it should be. You know, that's not a bad thing. Um, so I'm I'm a little bit lower on him than, than you are, but I do I absolutely can see a world where, you know, I look very, very stupid for doing so. Well, what's the point of list if not to make yourself look silly in a year or two? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just uh, briefly mention Darlene, because uh, we talked about him last year as like, okay, next year's kind of a make or break year, and it, it was more more break than make. Yeah, it wasn't... Uh, you know, we had Kevin on the pod last time, and uh, I always like hearing from him about Sabres prospects. Well, mention him again. Uh, because I got some quotes from him on another player. But it just feels like Dalene, you know, the expectations are so high when you come in as a first overall pick that you're going to come in and really just save the blue line. And he hasn't been up to that. And it's a huge lift. It's tough to play super well for the Buffalo Sabres. I'm sorry, but it is. But the questions that have always kind of been there about his defensive game don't seem to be getting answered in a positive way. Like, it just does not seem like he's that great, a defensive defenseman. And I think, you know, we see this a lot with very talented young defensemen who come into the league and who maybe aren't as good defensively. I hate to buy into the old hockey man stereotype, but it does seem like the kind of thing that not everyone gets right away. Whereas you can get quite picked, sorry, excuse me, picked quite highly as a defenseman based on your flashy offense. You know, you're skating, your power play points. So, I don't think Rasmus Dahlin is a write-off by any means. No one on this list ever should be, because they're so young. But I think that almost everyone's expectations of him are down from what they were when he was drafted. They just have to be. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the truly elite players, to some extent, can kind of transcend usage. And transcend mm-hmm. their situation, right? And... As you alluded to, that that's what you hope for when you pick someone number one overall. They can, that they can transcend their situation. That they can be the rising tide that lifts all the other boats. 
Yeah, exactly. Right? If you if you have to if you have to constantly say, well, you know, we're not optimizing his usage this way and that way and the other way, and it's like, okay, yes, that, I can understand that. Maybe you're not using him as well as he possibly could be used, but at some point, this guy's supposed to be the you know the sun around which your team orbits, mm-hmm. right? You you don't hear the sun complaining about you know oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not in the wrong place in the galaxy or whatever. Like the sun just does its thing, right? I think I assume, I assume that's what the suns do. This is a science lecture now, and yes, the sun <laughs> does its thing. But uh, yeah, no, I agree. Sometimes you just want a player to come in and make a big impact because that is the first overall expectation. There have to be players who can simply drive the bus, and Deline hasn't done that to the extent that we would hope. You know, his play has come and gone. Again, this was a ghastly year in Buffalo for a lot of players, especially early when they had that interminable losing streak under Ralph Kruger. And Kruger, the shine wore off him pretty hard by the end of his tenure. So, you know, maybe things will look better under Dom Granado. Maybe they won't. I don't anticipate Buffalo's going to be that good next year, but there's certainly room for progress. It's just a question of, I don't think that Delian is going to be the do-everything superstar that was hoped for, and that Buffalo really needs him to be, because they need more really good players. So, yeah, his arc will be interesting to watch. I won't rule out him figuring it out and turning into some facsimile of what he was supposed to be, but I wouldn't bet on it now. Yeah. So, with um, all that said, let's actually get onto the list. Right. Intense. So, yes. In tenth, we have yeah of the Montreal Canadiens. So, yeah, I mean, Caulfield is getting a lot of hype, justifiably so, right now, as um, you know, part of a, a Habs team that is uh, hopefully <laughs> losing Game Four of the Cup Finals as we re- as we record this, um, or at least will be in a few hours. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Caulfield has gotten a lot of hype for a long time. He was seen in many ways as the Alex Brinkett of his draft class, where. Um, with the ad- advantage of having been born after Alex Dabrinkit. So it was, there was like a very obvious recent example of, hey, here's this really small guy who scored a lot in junior and also still scores a lot. Right. And I think, you know, the size gets overplayed in a lot of ways. It has to be said, though, there are very few NHL players who are five foot seven. That's mm-hmm. not just short. That's real short. And you factor in the fact that generally listed player heights are lies he's a small guy and you know he looks it that's okay the league is different and small players have always played more than people realized but he is definitely one of the smallest players in the nhl and i think that that's a factor now the other thing is that he's a terrific goal scorer has been at every level he's played at yep and goal scoring is the single most valuable thing you can do in hockey yeah. Right. So, this is a very, very strong base to build from. Now, uh, his Caulfield's uh, NHL track record in the regular season is is very small because he barely played this year. He has a much longer playoff track record, funnily enough, and he's been he's been good in the playoffs. He's been very good in the playoffs, and he's very useful to a team like Montreal specifically because he is one guy who can take some of that territorial dominance and turn it into goals. Mm-hmm. So. I'm I'm quite high on Caulfield. I think he's good. I think he at at the moment he looks like a player whose shooting will absolutely translate, and mm-hmm. already has at, at you know high levels of, of of the game. 
his overall play is not amazing yet. I don't expect it to be. But it's good enough, and he's going to be put in a good situation in Montreal where he's not going to be relied on to like be the two-way force on a line. right? He can focus on um, basically just scoring goals. The other thing is, he might... Uh, I think one of the, the downsides of Montreal having no elite forwards is that they found it very easy to default into building a power play around defensemen. Mm-hmm. Right? No elite offensive forwards, I should say, or no elite kind of talent forwards. Um, Brendan Gallagher and Philip No are elite in their own ways, but it's not with their hands and skill with the puck. So I think one thing that Caulfield can be helpful with is kind of forcing the Habs to build a power play that is in the that belongs to 2020. As opposed to 1980. Yeah, I, and I think that that's certainly valid. Like, he's a great fit for them, as we've said, because lots of possession on that team, not a lot of finishing talent, especially when you get past, you know, Tyler Toffoli. Cole Caulfield can add goals, can add finishing. He is going to be a good NHL player. Full stop. I don't have a ton of doubt about that. The question for me about him is, what else is he going to add to his toolkit? Is he just going to be a guy who's a really good sniper and gets into good spots and finishes well and scores 30 goals a year, which is still really good, even if that's all he is. Or is he going to add elements that flesh out his game and make him really, really, really good? Make him elite? I don't know. I find it interesting that he's scored more goals than he's had assists seemingly everywhere he's been since 2017, at every level. He's just a finisher par excellence, and that's fine especially when you score goals in bunches. But it does make me wonder, is there a strong playmaking element that's going to play well at the the NHL level? Does his size make him ineffective defensively, or is he still able to to contribute in that regard? Uh, And, you know, there are examples of smaller players that are effective in this way. Mitch Marner, for all that everyone in Toronto hates him now, uh, is a good defensive winger despite not being very big. But he is bigger than Caulfield. Um, I, you know, I'm talking about his size, which is probably unfair. I'm being an old hockey man, but I do think when you're giving up, you know, three, four inches in height and a considerable amount of weight against other players, that makes it tougher. You do lose puck battles that you would win if you were bigger. I think that that's just inevitable. It's not fatal, but I do wonder where the stealing is. You can probably tell from the way that I'm talking about it. I actually ranked Caulfield just out of my top 10. Is this anti-Habs bias? Yes. But still, yeah, so, I, mean, I, I do... The, the, yeah. The, the yeah, reason I'm, I guess, higher on Caulfield is that, like... So, I think the obvious kind of downside when you have the all-he-does-a-score type is, is Patrick Laine. Mm. Right? Where Laine's star has fallen tremendously over, over the years. Um, because his goal scoring needed to be elite to justify his place in the lineup because he's really bad at everything else. With Caulfield, I'm not convinced he's ever going to be a great playmaker or a great play driver, but I think he could be average at those things. Mm. And if you're average at those things and also have an elite shot, that makes you a really, really valuable player. Yeah. And and you could absolutely have a career, even if he doesn't get to average in those respects. Like, look at Mike Hoffman. But... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the question is just where is the ceiling on him? And it's possible I'm talking myself into it being lower than it is because I do not want him to be all that successful as long as he's a Montreal Canadian. But he's going to be good. And he's the kind of player they needed. 
for sure. Unquestionably. Yeah, I, I had him. I had him at uh, at eight on my list. Yeah, I had him twelve. So, yeah, but I, I think you know, there's someone on Twitter who likes the the quote saying, you know, when draft time comes around, pick the little guy who fills the fucking net. And Caulfield is the embodiment of why that's a good idea sometimes. Y- you know, ultimately, he's very good at the most important thing. He's already doing it on, you know, the biggest stage that there is, the Stanley Cup playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, the only question is how high he's going to fly. But he's going to be good. Mm-hmm. So do you want to do your announcer voice for, for the other nine people, too, as we go? or, or... Oh, well, now that I've broken out the announcer voice, I can't. You know, someone described me as having, um, what was it? A teenage boy at a minimum wage job voice listening to this podcast. I enjoyed that. Like the guy from The Simpsons? Yeah, like, you know, you know and his voice keeps cracking. So, yeah. yeah, I'm going to fight back against that perception. At number nine, it's Dylan Cousins, center for the Buffalo Sabres. God, that's... Uh, we should also mention age when, when we go through each of these people. So, Caulfield is uh, 20 uh, right now, and Dylan Cousins is also 20. I think they're, like, about a month apart in age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, this was a... Ooh, I, another thing we should say. Um, the line between people at this end of the list is really, really small. Like, even between... Yes. Uh, you know, Caulfield and Hoaglander, Stutzel, Zegris, like, that, that's not a huge difference. Um, and with, with Caulfield and, and Cousins, uh, the, the difference was a half a ranking point between the two. So basically, one of, like, if I had ranked, if, sorry, if either one of us had ranked Caulfield one position higher or uh, Cousins one position lower, they would have tied, mm-hmm. basically. Um, so, yeah, Dylan Cousins of the Buffalo Sabres. Now, uh, you 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 chatted to Sabres Kevin about him, so maybe we should kind of lead with that, uh, right? Because you know he's much more familiar with with Cousins' game than either of us are. Yes, uh, Kevin was kind enough to give me an extended quote, and he said his size speed combo is obvious when you watch him, and over the course of the season he flashed a bit of playmaking. He is not as overly flashy as other players from his class, and that might hold back perception of him as a higher ceiling player. But I'm confident that in a neutral environment, he's the type of player who are who will offer as much or more actual value as his flashier counterparts. And he's talked about more about the the environment in Buffalo and how difficult it is uh, for players to come along. We just talked about it with Rasmus Dahlin, but it's hard being relied on in a big role for a team that sucks butt, and the Sabers have for a long time. And so they're asking a lot of Cousins. If Jack Eichel gets traded, they're going to ask more of him still because he's probably going to be the de facto first-line center. Um, Our managing editor, Katya, has a line about players to kind of sum them up. And she likes to say, okay, can he play hockey, though? And that's a simplified way of saying it's not just that he has standout skills or whatever. Can he actually translate those into an effective level of play? And the stats on Cousins are not that dazzling yet. But watching him, and from what Kevin has said, I feel like Cousins is the kind of guy who plays hockey. You know, he's just good at a lot of things. He's big. He's got some skating. He's got some power forward potential. And he just does enough things well that he'll string together good plays on a consistent basis, despite not having a standout skill like Caulfield's shot. Yeah, I mean, on a stats basis, it's frankly quite difficult to make an argument for 
cousins over Zegris. Sorry, not Zegris. I was thinking about Zegris as, as kind of an analog, as you know, someone else to, to compare to these players to, because they're all from the same draft class, I believe. Mm-hmm. There's not much of a comparison between Caulfield and Cousins in terms of stats. Like Caulfield's, especially with what he's done in the playoffs, looks better, and he's impacted things a lot more. Uh, because a shot is one of those things that is like maybe the most, if you have an elite shot, that's maybe the most translatable skill from junior to pros. Yeah, it has a way like, of showing up, are, right? You can beat yeah, goalies that you can't, like, yeah. Yeah, like goaltenders are better, obviously. So you'll, you'll beat them less often, but if you have a great shot, you're still going to beat them sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think with Cousins, I, I ranked him a little bit below Caulfield. You ranked him a little bit above Caulfield. Um, I, I think Cousins is good. I, uh, from what I've seen of him, yeah, he's, he's kind of one of those guys who, I think at various points in his career, will get underrated for kind of the thing that Kevin mentioned. There's not an identifiable thing that he does, mm-hmm. right? Um he doesn't have that, that signature skill. And maybe that prevents him from getting to the, really the, the top of the top in terms of elite uh, players. But he is just very, very good at, as you say, playing hockey. He just does the right thing a lot. And he's also you know, in an absolutely brutal situation uh, last year where the, the, the team around him was you know, dog shit, frankly. Mm. Um, apart, apart from a little bit of time with, with Tater Hall and the husk of Eric Stahl, you know, his, his most common line mates are Anders Bjork, who is like a fourth liner, I think, on, on the Bruins at some point, yeah. and R2 who I don't know of at all. Yeah, like, the one thing you have to say is that pretty much nobody on the Sabres is getting carried. The only guy who was doing that to any extent was Jack Eichel, and Jack Eichel missed most of this year uh, with an injury. So, Cousins is playing on hard, for sure. And... I have to admit, I was just impressed with his highlight reel in terms of he would just conduct plays by himself. There's actually one that was a disallowed goal due to an offside, but Kevin sent it to me. And it's like a one-man army rush on his part, and it's really impressive. Uh, And I just look at that, and I think this guy will probably figure it out. I do have somewhat mixed feelings about his shot because he looked to me a little bit like he kind of slings it and Mm -hmm. it was effective and he placed it well but it also wasn't the fastest release i don't know if that's if that's something that's borne out if i just caught uh you know a bad sample but it would be something that i would keep an eye on because generally to beat nhl goalies first and foremost you want a quick release now yeah and i mean i mentioned zegris before and zegris is another guy another another center um much more of a pass first player uh, as well, Trevor Zegers, like he's he's known as really a, a playmaker. Uh, so, the the comparison between them is also kind of interesting in how you how you view Zegers' playmaking versus Cousins' you know, potentially higher uh, upside as a as a two way and physical player with his increased size. Mm-hmm. Um, we ranked Cousins higher, but I think Zegers, you know, maybe he might have been a guy we actually underrated through through the rankings as well. But um, yeah, with with Cousins. It is definitely a little bit tricky to evaluate uh, in in a team like Buffalo because one of the other things is you know I don't think the um, the East was an incredibly strong division but that's in part because of teams like Buffalo, yeah. right? And then Cousins, Cousins never gets to play them, mm-hmm. right? So he 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 has to play you know generally pretty strong teams and that that makes a difference uh, as well. The one thing I'd like to see a little bit more from him, just kind of from from the stats, is I, I want him to shoot more. Right? I often use that as like a proxy for how well someone is involved in a play. 
uh, and in offensive play in particular. Um, because players typically, you know, with some exceptions, they only really shoot when they think it's a good play to, right? Very few players actually game shooting from, from everywhere. And we'll talk about one of them later. <laughs> um, so, you know, his shot rate is a little bit low. And maybe that's, you know, a, a little bit of a worry. But I, I was impressed with generally how he looked on an otherwise really, really poor Buffalo team with, you know, frankly, no talent around him. Being asked, you know, as the year progressed to do, I think, some pretty difficult things. Yeah. And so we're hoping to see better stats from him going forward. Yeah. But we're giving him a lot of credit for his situation and for his visual skills. Um, yeah. I mean, with, with yeah. basically all of these guys who are, you know, at this low end of the, of, the, of the list, we're looking at guys who have really limited NHL track records and neither Fulman nor I are scouts. So we're, we're kind of combining what we saw of scouting reports before they were drafted and, you know, they're less than one season NHL stat lines, which we put some stock into, but not an enormous amount because it's one season in the NHL in essentially closed environments based on division. Yeah. I mean, the stats this year, I have no idea how they're going to mature or whether we're going to end up looking at them all as insane aberrations. It, it could be a pretty crazy season statistically, um, as it turns out. I mean, it was in McDavid's point totals, if nothing else. But yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, are we ready to move to number eight? Yep, let's do it. Number eight, Alexis Lafreniere, left wing for the New York Rangers. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Lafreniere is 19 years old. Obviously, was the first overall pick in the 2020 NHL draft. Mm-hmm. Um, was in the NHL this year. Was not amazing, right? Um, and it's like, that. That's, that's okay. That's not, you know, that's not a huge issue. Right. When we talk about how hard it is to play in the NHL as a teenager... This is who I'm thinking of. And I saw a lot of tweets and people were saying, oh my God, this guy was a disaster, a bust. He's not a real first overall pick of any caliber. And it's like, you got to just chill a little bit. The vast majority of players are not Austin Matthews their first year. Like that was just an extraordinary rookie season of the kind that you rarely see. Alexis Lafreniere had one goal in his first 15 games and 11 in his last 41. Now, normally I hate the endpoints gain that this implies where I just cut it uh, to make him look better. But the first 15 games there that I'm describing were the first 15 of his NHL career. So I think expecting some growth as the year went on is reasonable. If nothing else, though, his hands are absurd, man. Like, you look at his highlight reel, and within three seconds you're like, oh, no, I get it. That's why. (laughs) And, yeah, that was already on display. I I think the way he looked on the whole was kind of the way you expect really talented 18-year-olds to look generally, which is they struggle to drive play because they're not physically developed, the game is just much faster, they're not thinking at the level of NHLers quite yet, or not all the time. But when they get the puck on their stick in dangerous situations, it's still the same stick, it's still the same puck, they can still do crazy things with it. Mm. Right? And that's exactly what we saw. Like his, his, He finished at a very uh, impressive rate. That's really good to see. Right? That, that flash is that high-end puck skill that you know, justifies ranking him uh, or taking him number one overall. Um, and he was, you know, not amazing at driving play, but again, that's fine. That's going to come with time. He, he was, the other thing is, uh, you know, I do follow some Rangers fans and they were not entirely happy with how he was used at times. I mm-hmm. think it took quite a while before he was given like a consistent run of line mates. He was kind of bounced up and down a lot. And 
you know, that can, that can have an impact for sure uh, when, when it comes to a young player trying to find their feet in a very kind of weird situation in the NHL. Yeah, it's worth noting his new head coach, who was just hired, is going to be Gerard Gallant, who is widely considered an excellent coach, maybe with a bit of a skew towards veterans, but we'll see. I'm sure that in hiring him, one of the top questions was, what are you going to do with our young players like Kako and Lafreniere? That has to be a huge priority for the Rangers organization. So I, I have very little doubt that Lafreniere is going to be a first-line player. I just yeah. do not believe that any one of his abilities is going to miss. Um, yes, and yeah. I mean, the age thing is, again, very important, right? Like, on, over, Hoglander almost certainly had a better year than, than Lafreniere. Mm-hmm. Right, like not almost certainly he did, yeah. right? But he's also a year and a half older, at right. at an age where that makes a really significant difference. Yeah, it, like it, it's huge, and it goes a long way. And if there were one thing that um, really impacted me watching his highlights, something that really stood out to me, is he took a pass from the corner from Artemi Panarin of all people, and he did this little forehand backhand shuffle to beat the goalie around the pad and then tucked the puck in. And he did this while being cross-checked into the ice. Sidebar. It's insane that the league doesn't call cross-checking better. Okay, whatever. But being able to operate and keep ahead enough to finish that play while getting knocked down, I think that that's a very positive little play. And that, you know, that speaks to his presence of mind and his ability to keep operating under pressure because that's a huge portion of what hockey is about. If you're an offensive player is the ability to keep doing what you can do when you're getting hit, when you're getting defended very aggressively. You you know, lots of guys are good in an empty rink. Lafreniere, I think there are already signs that he's good on a crowded one. And I think he's only going to get better. So I remain high on Lafreniere. Yeah, no, I I think he's going to be good, um, especially like, it, if his shooting talent is real and he's able to increase the amount of shots he takes, that can be hugely valuable because he he's not a uh, a huge shot guy right now. He doesn't take that many, mm. right? Um, and you know, it, it remains to be seen. I didn't watch him close enough to know if he's bozacking it, but mm. given his reputation of being a really high skill player, I, I I doubt that's the case. I think you know he just struggled at at least at first to get to the spots that he needs to get to but then when he's there he's able to convert right and as he gets more comfortable and he's more able to get to those spots i'm you know really positive that he he's going to be a very good player for a very long time and you know in a world where if we ever um you know have international best on best again he's probably going to make a team canada at some point especially because he plays left wing which is historically a weaker position mm-hmm. so yeah lots to recommend him there and mostly that's just, I'm just reacting here to the number of people I saw who kind of lost patience with him immediately. And I think that that was really premature. Um, yeah. Are we ready for number seven? Uh, yes, we are. Well, number seven, Jason Robertson, left winger for the Dallas Stars. And he is 21. He is. Um, so it's worth noting that Robertson and Lafreniere were separated by, again, half a point. So... You know, a, a change in ranking for either one of us in of, of the amount of one point or one spot would have made them tie. Mm-hmm. Um, Robertson is, yeah, like he's, we, we talked about him on one of our awards podcasts. What he's done in terms of being a 
pr you genuinely productive, good all-round player at age, you know, 20, 21. Very, 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 very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. He's a great sniper. He's big, much bigger than his brother, as we've mentioned. Finished a lot of plays for Dallas. My only question, and I raised this in the awards podcast, is I kind of wondered from what I saw if he was the straw stirring the drink, so to speak. You know, if Right, because he, he did play with Rupe Hintz, who also had one of those like bonkers years where you, you look back like five years from now, and you're like, whoa, Rupe Hintz had a year where he was like the 10th best skater in the world? What the hell? Yeah, or, and, and Joe Pavelski, who Joe Pavelski as well, unbelievably well. And so, like, oh, sorry, I, I just want to point out the the one guy, uh, the one old guy, the stars didn't resign is the one that's or not the stars, the sharks didn't resign is the <laughs> one that's aging well. Yeah, and everyone else they were like, let's give them eight years, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> woof. Anyway, yeah. So I do wonder a little bit how that'll translate. And Dallas has a bit of an overhanging issue in that most of their best forwards are old. You know, Pavelski, yeah. Sagan, Ben. Uh, so that might be a concern for them for a team-building perspective. But as long as they can put people with Robertson, who get him the puck a lot, I think that he will figure out what to do with it. Yes. Not a lot of doubt there. Uh, yeah, he, you know, very good shot. Something that we hope that Nick Robertson will also will also do. Uh, kind of dog it on, on, on puck retreat. As you mentioned... He is bigger than Nick Robertson. I've noticed a lot of these fans kind of assuming they must, you know, which is not an awful assumption if you don't know that. Okay, you know, Nick Robertson is small. His brother's probably not huge. But yeah, he's he's huge. He's like, he's much bigger. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, Nick Robertson was, was born prematurely, obviously. Um, yes. And so he's 5'9". His brother is a full six inches taller. So. Yes. One of the big things that made me like Robertson, uh, Jason Robertson, or made me like kind of really be quite a bit of a believer in him is that by the end of the year he was like he's being played like a first liner he mm -hmm. earned the coach's trust that's hard to do for someone that age right so i i, I think it, it it says something right like the that that you know the stars coaching staff actually really see something in him that they think okay this isn't just like some rookie who we have to protect we're just going to use him you know not you know, kind of agnostic of the fact that he's a young player. We're just treating him like he's a veteran, right? Yeah, and so, that means they believe he's one of their best players. And yeah, right. and I don't think <laughs> I don't think Rick Bonus uh, has any particular uh, reputation one way or the other for you know overplaying or underplaying rookies. I, I yeah, I think he's probably a standard coach in that sense, which means he's probably a little bit risk averse. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I think. He, if he trusts Robertson, that's a good indicator that he's doing the little things right. Because those are the things that coaches hate and what, you know, often frustrates fans is a, a guy, a, a young player will do, you know, most things well and clearly be a net benefit to the team. But the 15% of things that he does poorly are the things that coaches kind of overweight. Yeah. I, I mean, look right? at Caulfield. He was scratched the first two games yeah. of the Leafs Hab series, which looks insane. insane. It is. Um, insane. Well, and why is, we're here, yeah. why, why is Thomas Tatar not playing? We did we did a podcast where like, man, that Tatar Gallagher, uh, Dano line that that's gonna be tough. And then Tatar just never played. It's oof. okay. Little aside here, <laughs> we tried not to talk about the Habs. The Habs legitimately were impressive, and we were always high on them. That they've exceeded my expectations, no question. But also like. 
a huge portion of this was a massive goalie run. It just was. And you can say it's Carey Price. He should be expected to produce more goalie runs than the average bear. That's fair. They are paying him for that. And, you know, he has delivered. But, like, I think when you make the finals, and especially if you win the cup, but when you make the finals, a kind of, like, magic fairy dust gets sprinkled over every decision, every player acquisition, everything you've done, because it's like, well, they were part of a, of a very successful playoff team. It must have been the right decision. But I think the Habs have done a lot of things, and Ducharme has done a lot of things, that are a little bit iffy, and that Carey Price was covering for. If, and, if the Leafs yeah. win that game six, that decision to bench Tatar, because Tatar played the first five games, I believe. Mm. I haven't looked this up, but I think, I think he got benched for game six, uh, which is so, somewhat unusual, because uh, normally lineups are unchanged after wins. But uh, like if, if the Habs lose that game six or that game seven without Tatar playing, yeah, like there's there's a huge amount of furor about that move, and yeah, like it's it's weird that they haven't played Tatar. He's he's good, he's he's a good player. Um, yeah. I recognize I w- that he's not always amazing defensively, and again, coaches can overweight that. Um, and I guess you can't say it's necessarily hurt Montreal that much, but it's still something that I find odd. Like the process is still odd to me, despite the results looking fine. I think you can absolutely argue it's hurt Montreal. Like, the Deneau, I mean, well, Deneau yeah. has one he, goal in 20 games in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying, you know, like, he probably misses Tatar, who is one of their better playmaking wingers, say what you will. But anyway, yeah, I, I yes, will yes, we, not we torture digress. myself about this anymore. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so I think Robertson is going to be an, an impressive player for the Stars for some time to come. I think they have some questions, and they... You know, they have to be considering who they're going to play him with, but maybe it is just Rupe Hens, and then that's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but but very impressive all-around player with some nice finishing. Um, are you ready for number six? Yeah, so actually, actually yeah. before you, you give your you know, pro wrestling <laughs> introducer voice again, um, we should mention that like from here on out, like the, the top six players, are now we're getting to the, to the realm of players who have multiple years' track record in the right. NHL. Mm-hmm. Right, so these are players who we've seen more, and spoiler alert, a lot of them are from the Atlantic. So we, you know, or at least a couple of them are from the Atlantic or from the Canadian division. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've seen these guys, you know, quite a bit more. And now we can be a bit more confident in what these people are. So, yeah, um, yeah just wanted to kind of give that as context and uh, go ahead. <laughs> Number six from the Ottawa Senators at left wing, it's Brady Kachuk. And Brady Kachuk is 21. Um, yes. as mentioned, more established. I think that there's a big question hanging over everything about evaluating Brady Kachuk, and we mentioned it mm-hmm. last year when he made this list, and now it's again. It's, will he ever finish at an average or even just a little below average rate? Or is he doomed to be constantly forcing shots that don't go in? Because if you look at his stat profile, it looks like he is generating a McDavid caliber level of offensive chances. And he is finishing on them unbelievably poorly. Like yes. the discrepancy and, there is crazy. Yeah. And at a certain point where this has been the case for basically two of his three years in the, in the NHL where his offensive uh, play driving looks among the best in the league. And then his finishing looks among the worst in the league. At this point, I, I don't think we can take that at face value and honestly say, yeah, I think Brady Kachuk is, you know, the best offensive play driver in the league, but also shoots like Colton Orr. Yeah. It's just... Uh, There's very obviously 
something going on here with respect to how his shots are are counted um with respect to how, you know his decision making in terms of when he's putting the puck on net from the angles he's putting the puck on net is he just hacking away five times into a goalie's pad and those are all being recorded as five different shots which have you know in reality a zero percent chance to go in or very close to zero percent chance to go in but you know by xg models because when players take shots from really close and tight they historically have a very good probability of going in um due to you know where the goalie's positioned and whatnot uh it, it looks like he's massively underperforming xg whereas you know the reality might be xg is overrating those chances because it can't see that he's just stuffing pucks into pads from an angle of zero degrees Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think yeah. Okay. Go ahead. No, I mean, I guess this is—it's a really interesting question as to you know what precisely is happening here. Uh, Mike McCurdy has these really useful like kind of finishing um, breakdowns where it, it breaks it breaks out finishing uh, and scoring touch more or less from uh, across different shot types, and the thing with. Um, Brady Kachuk, at least last year, he was about league average on tips slash deflections, which is kind of what you would expect. My thinking is that for the most part, one tip from one player is similar to another tip from another player. It's just what distinguishes players is how often they get those tips. Mm. Maybe that's a flawed assumption, but I would expect most people, I would expect like the, the distribution of finishing on tips slash deflections to be quite tight. Uh, and Kachuk's in line with that. Kachuk literally never takes slap shots. He took five of them this year. Mm. Um, he takes a few backhands, finishes on them poorly. They're all from really close and tight. And then the wrists and snap shots are really where he, and for most players, the, the bulk of the shots he takes. He has a little hot finishing spot at the top of the right circle, which makes sense because mm. he, he does have some skill. And then everywhere else, it's ice, ice, ice cold. Mm. And the, the pattern of the backhand and wrist shot um, finishing to me, suggests that he is shoveling pucks to the net indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, like it's yeah. It, it, it's kind of it's stat padding in a sense, or it's like analytics padding. It, it, it is a little bit ironic that Brady Kachuk, this tough, hard-nosed player, might be the guy who's quote-unquote gaming analytics, which is something that you know I think old-timey sports writers have implied uh, is something that you know skill perimeter players would do. Yeah, well, I mean, the main use of that argument is to condemn players they don't like who have good analytics and be like, well, they're just, you know, gaming it to their benefit. Whereas Brady Kachuk is gaming it in the most old school hockey way of all time by going to the dirty areas of the ice and hacking and slashing until hopefully something bounces in. But And most of the time it doesn't. And most of the time it doesn't. And so that's a really significant point in evaluating Brady Kachuk. Because, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time on his towering flaw. Because he's very good at a lot of things. He's big. He is a nasty son of a bitch. He is good at drawing penalties. He's a massive net positive in offensive chances. He's still a good player, even if this is just how it is. Like, it's fine. He's a 50-point power forward type who is going to piss everybody off and who will, you know, get a decent number of points and goals per year. And, you know, hacking and slashing the puck into the net isn't the worst thing in the world if it goes in a certain percentage at the time. It's just, if he can learn to finish, 
if he can be a little bit more effective, that changes his trajectory immensely because so much is already there. And so the question yeah. is, is this something that he can fix? Or is it, as we've been saying, we kind of suspect, to some extent, part and parcel of getting all the shots that he does is that they're bad. And that if he improves them, by definition, he's going to get fewer of them. Because you can't get this many good shots. Yeah, that, that's kind of my thinking at this point. Mm-hmm. Where he, he, he just... Yeah, he, and when you watch him, this, it kind of bears it out. Where he, he gets his stick on so many, so many things that people otherwise wouldn't be able to. But, it, you know, he's like off balance, doing it between his legs, his, looking out of the ear hole of his helmet. Right? It, like they're, they're not high quality shots. It's not necessarily things that he's taking off the table necessarily. Right? It's not like um, there's much better options who he's looking off in order to force bad shots. I, I think most of these are like hustle plays that just end up having low value um, right. and are not that common in hockey. So they get kind of, they fool XG models into thinking they're much higher value uh, than they are because, you know, those models can't necessarily see his positioning or the or puck or, you know, the, the goaltender's positioning or how on or off balance he is or, you know, all those things like that. But as of right now, I certainly expect him to be a guy that whose goals impact is always going to be much less than his expected goals impact, at least offensively, um, for exactly this reason. Now, it's one of the other things worth noting. Ottawa has, you know, over the course of his time, they've been a pretty dog shit team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things with Kachuk is, to me, it's a little bit unclear how he's going to scale with better and better line mates. I've been wondering because that too, yeah. He's not a phenomenal passer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some sense, he doesn't need to be. He's decent enough at it. And him being like a human kind of trash collector in front, maybe you pair a passer with him and just say, okay, you know, this guy's going to set you up in front and give you more high-value chances in front, and maybe that'll be enough. Um, but, you know, we, we haven't we haven't seen him play with someone really all that great yet uh he didn't play at all with with Stutzla this year uh which makes sense because you know Stutzla again wasn't very good this year and Kachuk is probably the senator's best forward he played with Josh Norris and Drake Batherson who are good and Connor Brown who's okay Mm -hmm. um but yeah I'm not entirely sure how well his game will uh will translate or how well it'll evolve and work with other high-end players if Ottawa gets them yeah, I would bet probably on it scaling well rather than the reverse. I could be wrong. But I think that it can only be to his benefit to play with better players than Josh Norris and Connor Brown. Um, yeah, not, Norris is know. good, by the way. Like, he, he maybe should have made the outer fringes of this list, right? Like He, he played pretty difficult minutes on Ottawa, had a positive play-driving impact, and, and finished well. Yeah, I, and I mean, to his credit for that, for sure. Um but I do think that Kachuk would be a great complementary player for players like Stutzla projects to be. You know, if you're yes. asking who would I love to have at left wing with Matthews and Marner, Brady Kachuk. I would adore that idea. Now, it, I wouldn't be perfect. As you said, he maybe wouldn't be the best passer. But someone who just goes to the crease and causes absolute chaos to the best of his ability, I would enjoy that very much. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops as the Senators lineup improves and matures and puts better talent with him. Um, either way, he's going to be a good power forward. 
but is he going to be just, you know, like a good player with flaws? Or is there more to be gained there if he starts finishing on these chances and then he starts looking like a really dominant player? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, with these players now, like, the question is, we know they're, everyone who we're talking about on the list at this point is, like, an upper end of the lineup player. The question is, can they become an elite player, essentially? Right. Um, if they're not there already. Uh, actually, also, I just looked this up. Norris actually is ineligible for, ineligible for this because he turned 22 in May. Oh, how dare he? So Yeah, so, so, so that, that's good. That means Ottawa fans, if they listen to this, can't yell at us. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, like, a hundred other things. I'm sure we got wrong about Zenders, but hey. Yes. Uh, number five. Uh, coming in at fifth, Nick Suzuki, center for the Montreal Canadiens. Um, right. So yeah, I've mentioned this 21. a few times before. Yes, yeah. he's 21. I've mentioned this a few times before. Um, Nick Suzuki has put me in the like position of having to argue against a player who I actually quite like because I think he is very good and nonetheless Montreal fans overrate him. That said, you know, we're not talking about the reaction to the reaction here. So let's just talk about Nick Suzuki, the player, because he's really neat. He's a very good player. Yeah. Nick Suzuki is just a very creative player. And it jumps off the screen at you when you're watching the Montreal Canadiens, who, for a long time, did not have all that many super creative offensive players. It really stood out to me on the power play. I remember, and this was uh, season before this one, and... The first unit was, like, the most moribund thing that night. Like, it just looked awful. It was just Jay Weber point shots and stuff. And then they put the second unit out. And it was the Nick Suzuki show. And it was way better. And I was like, they should do that all the time. <laughs> um, I think he's just a very smart player. He's a bit undersized. You know, like, he's not tiny or anything. But he's not huge. And he's not, like, the fastest skater you've ever seen. But he's just a right. smart, creative player. Yeah. Um, so the yeah. we've mentioned the, the lack of kind of elite um, movement and skating before. And I think that does kind of hamper his upside to some degree. He doesn't yeah. have that gear where he can go around people. right? And I, I don't mean that in, like, he doesn't have that McDavid gear because no one has that McDavid gear. Uh, but, he, you know, he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't even have, you know, notably above average top end speed from from what i've seen mm -hmm. uh, what he's good at is you know kind of dictating the pace through the rest of his game right through uh his his head movements through the way he sets up plays through his passing he's a very um he's a very complete offensive player aside from that kind of physical tool and in a lot of ways he reminds me a bit of william nylander mm. um so you know I, I think that's like a reasonable compa comparable for him Right? They, they, they've put up kind of somewhat similar point totals. Uh, they have somewhat similar net uh, play driving effects, although Nylander's is tilted more towards producing offense, and Suzuki appears to be better defensively at the same age, significantly better defensively. I, I wonder if some of that is also the systems in which they're in, right? Um, I suspect you know, so, kind of but that's Taking on the personality of the team around them to some extent, mm. right? Where... Uh, the Leafs, you know, certainly in Nylander's formative years were all offense, no defense, and uh, the Habs are a bit of the reverse and have actually a really robust system for, for young players to kind of be um, introduced into. Now, to his credit, I mentioned this with Robertson, and it's important here, uh, Suzuki was essentially Montreal's most played player, through, or forward at least, through most of the year, right? He has earned the, the trust of both Claude Julien and um, Dom Ducharme. That says something. That's valuable. 
and yeah, I, I think you know his his net effect is kind of going to be on the end on the same end of Boy Meets Enders, as mentioned, they do it in, in different ways. Um, Suzuki more through controlling the pace of game, and Nenander more with kind of the the constant barrage of uh, offense from different angles and mm-hmm. and you know different different plays, right? I think Nenander's more dynamic offensively and with the puck on a stick for sure. Um, but Suzuki has a lot going for him, and the way he thinks the game is really the fundamental reason why he is as good as he is. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that Suzuki is very well suited to be the guy on a team that looks like it's overachieving. You know, I think he's the best offensive player on Montreal, full stop, already. And I think that he stands out on a team that doesn't have a lot uh, of offensive firepower of his caliber. He's not like a gold-plated star, as we've said. He doesn't have some miraculous standout skill that's going to really elevate him into the Matthews McKinnon kind of tier. And that's okay. He's still going to be very, very good. But I think Montreal is probably going to, at some point, have to confront some questions about building around him. They can still be an excellent team where Suzuki is the best forward. I'm just saying that the ceiling is probably a little lower than if they had a a superstar. But he's about as good as you can be in the next year down, I feel like. Yeah, I, I... Again, this is the kind of the William Neander thing, right? Not to turn mm-hmm. everything to something but the least, but it's, it's useful contextually where, um, you know, if William Neander is your best forward, that's probably, you know, that your, your upside is limited. Now, I mean, uh, we say that. What we mean, whenever we say, you know, anything absolute, we mean, you know, within most universes, right? There's always the chance things happen. As you said, Suzuki's arguably one of the Habs' best offensive forwards, and it doesn't look like they're going to win the cup, but they got damn close. Mm-hmm. Right, um, so I think it's it's worth bearing that in mind. They they've got relatively far with a very young Nick Suzuki, uh, as is. But yes, I I do agree that you know generally speaking, he's not the archetypal number one center on a conventionally constructed NHL top end contender. Yeah, the, that doesn't mean I don't he think he's ever going to get incredibly useful. No, no, I don't think so either but he's a very very useful player to have does a lot of things well Uh, I think another thing is he he seems to fit well with a lot of different players and Mm. it's also worth noting he doesn't have you know crazy elite offensive line mates with him either he played a bit with uh, I think Duran and Anderson and then Toffoli and Armia Toffoli and Anderson are are good players right and the line with Armia Toffoli and Suzuki um, I think worked pretty well for, for for portions of the year maybe it struggled a bit towards uh, in April, when you know the Habs kind of fell off a cliff entirely, but yeah, like, I I think Suzuki is going to be a very good player for a very long time. He does kind of fit in that Montreal kind of standard thing, which has been the case almost as long as I've been alive. Where, like the Leafs until recently, they 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 don't have that elite league bending talent mm-hmm. the way the you know, and the Leafs didn't have that for a long time either. And only recently they've got it with with Matthews and, and Marner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Suzuki is, is going to is going to change that for the Habs. But you are incredibly thrilled if you can have him on your second line. Like that that is you're, you're stacked if Nick Suzuki's on your second line, at least at forward. Yeah, I remember I was saying beforehand that if you could just like airdrop a first line center in front of all of them, and that, you know they tried with the Sebastian Aho offer sheet. 
the Habs look really good all of a sudden. And, you know, the Habs have looked good in these playoffs without that. But just imagining this team with Deneau as a pure third-line center type, with Suzuki at second line, and then with another star on top, then I think that they're at least giving Tampa a run. Uh, and, you, you know, the, they're a very interesting team as a consequence. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I might be damning him with faint praise, and that's not really what I want to do, because I really do believe that he's an exceptional player. And Montreal is probably not unhappy that he's their best one, even if he's not one of the very best in the NHL. Um, mm-hmm. Ready to move on? Um, I think so, yeah. Nothing else I wanted to say about Suzuki. Oh, sorry. No, there was one thing I wanted to say about Nick Suzuki. Okay. Um, so, you know, we just lavished a lot of praise on a Habsire, which, believe me, d- does not please either of us. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there were earnest tweets from, like, respected sports writers this year who were going like, you know, Nick Suzuki's really reminding me of a young Patrice Bergeron. Mm. And this was during Suzuki's, you know, hot streak to start the year where he, you know, had an on-ice shooting percentage of a, of a, of a bajillion or something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, look, don't compare him to Patrice Bergeron. Maybe don't compare Just, anyone to Patrice Bergeron. No. Like, he no, might Patrice be the best Bergeron's defensive player of all of time. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, Patrice Bergeron put up 73 points at age 20 and then followed up with 70 points at age 21. <laughs> like, oh, man. You know, we, we, we pigeonhole Patrice Bergeron into like, oh, yeah, he's, he's been a, you know, he's one of the best offensive centers ever, which is true. Mm-hmm. He's a really good offensive center as well, right? And his point totals actually never caught up to that afterwards, I think in part because of um, uh, power play uh, usage. Mm-hmm. But like, his even strength points have always been very good. Bergeron. So I feel like every you know three or four podcasts we just go on a rant about how people still don't fully appreciate Patrice Bergeron, and this is no doubt informed by him kicking our ass in like three separate playoff series. Um, yeah, but yeah, he's he's really 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 good. Stop comparing people to Patrice Bergeron. Yeah, I I mean this very sincerely. The Pasternak Marchand Bergeron line is the best line in the NHL still, in my opinion. The Marchand Bergeron Crosby line is the best line I have ever seen exist in any kind of competitive hockey game from the World Cup of Hockey in 2016. They were stupid good. Anyway, I'm I'm mad about this. (laughs) No, it was it was. I mean, I I was like half rooting for Canada at those events. I always find it a little bit boring to root for Canada at at these international events, which I mean I usually do, but it's it's like okay, I mean. You know, let, let's win, but this is, this is, I hope someone gives us a bit, at least a bit of a fight, mm-hmm. which sounds very, very egotistical because, you know, it's single elimination hockey and anything can really happen. Um, but Canada's team is usually, you know, so stacked that they're the odds on favorite. Watching that Bergeron, Crosby, Marchand line, it was just like, this is unfair. How, yeah. how do you beat this line? I remember thinking the rest of the lineup was not actually clicking that well. And it did not matter. I was like, this line is just like, there's nothing anyone can do. It's not even like, oh, yeah, they're really good. It's like, literally, what does it matter? Like, you're defending against that? Like, just retire. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That was a uh, disgusting line. Ugh. We've praised so many Habs and Bruins on this podcast. It leaves a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah. I, I, as for the, sorry, this is another di- yeah, digression. Uh, in terms of best lines in the league right now, 
I mean, mm. do you not do do you still put how how much of a gap is there between that you know Bergeron, Marchand, Pasternak line against uh, Rantanen, McKinnon, Landeskog? Yeah, not much. And I knew that like if you're looking at the other lines, that's an obvious candidate. Yeah. And the Oilers are capable of putting together a line that contends with it with McDavid, Drysaitel, Guy. But yeah, and 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 it put Nugent Hopkins there in particular. Like that's that's a very good line as well. Yeah, and even though they I don't, don't think they did that typically much. do that. No, uh, Drysaitel yeah. mostly played on his own this year. But yeah, and even when they yeah. did play together, I don't think they. I mean, they're really totaling their depth uh, if they do that. I mean, what type of coach would decide, maybe in an elimination game, but even in a regular season game, to just play three stars together despite never doing that for the entire year and cripple his depth um, against, you know, an opponent, whether they're stronger or weaker. I don't, I don't think any NHL coach would ever do that. You know, when you did the setup for that joke, like four words in, it was like me seeing an oncoming train and being like, this is going to run me over. <laughs> and it just happened. Hmm. It's like the pain still is still not over. Again. Yeah, no, nor will we it. ever be. <laughs> the only way we're getting over this is if the Leafs win a goddamn round, which they, God knows that that'll ever happen. So, yeah. Number four for the Vancouver Canucks on defense, Quinn Hughes. And Ooh. actually, we should yeah. we should we should uh, note that we have a tie actually for spots three and four. Right. Yes. Forgive me. Tied for number three, defense for the Vancouver Canucks, Quinn Hughes. Um. And yet, after maybe a mixed bag of a season for him i yeah i mean his his, you know i think the the conversation heading into this year was like oh hughes or mccarr which or heiskanen who we'll talk about you know which of these young defensemen is is you know quote unquote the best right and i think a lot of people were kind of debating really between hughes and uh mccarr they're certainly the more offensive minded of of those three um and now i think mccarr is like kind of very kind of pulled clear of this discussion yeah. Uh, and, and Hughes, after a somewhat rough year, has dropped back a bit from it. Yeah, I last year I had Hughes ahead of Makar. And I still <laughs> think that team context is maybe understated in that discussion. Vancouver is atrocious. Colorado is excellent. But I think, you know, Makar has done a lot to separate himself. Yeah, I mean, Makar is a huge reason why, why they're yeah, so good. That's, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a, a chicken and egg thing there, like, they're good partly because they have an unbelievably talented young defenseman. Quinn Hughes impresses me visually as much as any player in the NHL. Like he's just a gorgeous skater in terms of yeah, just an absolute savant when it comes to skating. Yeah, like it's just like a pleasure to watch him do it. Honestly, like just a a gifted gifted player. He was also a part of probably the worst NHL defense I can remember. And I know that that's probably not true. And at some point, you know, when the Leafs were tanking and they were playing Keith Ollie or whatever, they probably weren't even tanking when they played Ollie. They were just terrible. But um, but the Vancouver Canucks, especially early in this year, um, and this is before the COVID outbreak. I'm not blaming them for anything subsequent to that. But they let players get to the crease more easily than I've ever seen an NHL defense do. And... There were a lot of parties at fault for that, but it's hard for me not to be like, well, Quinn Hughes was involved. He was present. I mean, he's their most play, he's their most played defenseman. Right? Yeah, like so you know you can you, you're going to get some of that on you if that yeah. blows up. So yeah, and now he played with Travis Hamonic, who was washed. But yeah, and well, I mean, he also and 
he got a much better linemate at one point in Jordy Ben, right? Like, he is so much better. <laughs> That's a murderous how, 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 how can Quinn Hughes complain? <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. is, and, and you can see this echoing through the whole list, where it's like, okay, but they also play for, like, the worst team imaginable. So how much slack do you, do you cut them for that? And isolated stats try to. But but yeah. it is still still tricky. I'm so impressed with Hughes as an offensive defenseman, and his point totals were still ridiculous. But yes. I care less about defenseman points, and it does give me a bit of pause that he appears to have been part of a turnstile committee on defense. Right. Like that just now, let anyone through. The interesting thing is that the, the stats bottles have different ways of, like, blaming him for it, or, or different kind of levels of blaming him for it, where RAPM, which has, of course, no prior based on previous years, mm-hmm. uh, says, yeah, Hughes was really, really bad defensively this year. Mm-hmm. Right? Or, or, I guess, you know, to, to be more precise about it, in the context in which he was played, Hughes was associated with very, very bad defense from the Canucks. Mm-hmm. Um, Hockey Viz views Hughes as league average defensively and in part of that in part that's based on a prior where you know hockey viz has looks at implicitly the player's career up until that moment more or less and decides how to allocate blame based on that and my guess without looking it up is that harmonic and uh jordy ben have ridiculously awful defensive results by hockey viz because they're ascribing a lot of those really bad defensive results to those players mm-hmm. um now the interesting one of the interesting things we saw is that the year prior he played primarily hughes p- played primarily with chris tanev who we all thought was kind of washed tanev then went to calgary and had a pretty decent year mm-hmm. and maybe and you know maybe um that pairing was more symbiotic than we than we thought they were essentially uh that that, that might be my, my thinking uh, Hughes does seem to have, you know, still significant problems defensively, at least visually. Uh, and that's always, he's never looked incredible visually in the first place on defense. But yeah, I'm, I'm not blaming him entirely for that disaster. He's still very, very good. He could, you know, very easily win a Norris, especially if Vancouver finds him, you know, a TJ Brody to play with effectively. Yeah, I do feel very confident. Quinn Hughes, you want him to have a defensive defenseman partner. Or at least a guy who can do that at, at a high mm-hmm. level. You know, even better if he can play offense too. But Chris Tanev is the kind of guy that I think you want. You know, someone who is going to free up Hughes to just go to the offensive zone and do magic stuff and pinch when right. he feels so inclined and all that good stuff. And, you know, when he's paired with someone who's not capable of that, that's a problem. And I think we saw exactly how ugly it can get in the course of this year for Vancouver. Yes, with Hughes as a defenseman, you know, when we talked about his movement, you, you want to leverage that movement, right? So you want to give him the freedom to go where his heart sees fit and tell him more or less, okay, look, you know, it's not, it's not that you have no defensive responsibilities, but what makes you special is your ability to move, mm-hmm. right? And you're, you're, you know, he has great instincts when he does have the puck in the offensive zone, no matter where within the offensive zone it is. And he's not hes not Morgan Riley defending the rush either, right? I'd say he's a better defender than Riley is, certainly at, at his age. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a team should absolutely try and maximize what they get out of, out of his offense because 
that's the more special part of it. And he's not so bad defensively that it's undoing all the good that he, he creates offensively. Now, one of the things the Canucks did, they play him a lot with Pedersen when Pedersen was healthy. I think that's a smart decision. Yeah, um, well, and that's something that I wanted to remark on. They should do that more than they do. They didn't do it as much as I expected this year. Um, and I find that surprising. And I know that it's clouded by Pedersen's injury, but still, like, with a player of Hughes' caliber, you should be thinking, how can I put this guy in the offensive zone every single chance I get? And you should prioritize doing that. And Pedersen, same sort of thing. Put them together. It seems like a given. Yeah, I mean, so I'm looking at Hockey Viz's um, uh, defenseman with forward ice time graphic that they that they have, which I, I love looking at because it's a really nice thing to... It's a really well-designed graphic. Um, they have Hughes playing quite a bit with Pedersen, or quite a bit more than uh, you would naively expect if uh, proportional ice time between forward and defenseman were completely independent. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wonder if that's skewed a bit due to like partial games and like injuries and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. They absolutely... It, to, to whatever extent they are playing with Hughes with Pedersen, they should probably just keep doing that or do that more. Right? Yeah. Like the, you, know, you, you, you want to leverage your two elite offensive talents uh, playing together because those types of players are um, synergistic, right? Like they, they make each other better in like a non-linear way. Right. And I'm thinking of um, like what Adam Fox was doing with Artemi Panarin this year, where he <laughs> was playing tons of minutes, um, the two of them together, and Fox won a Norris on a not unrelated note. Um, you know, when I'm looking, I would say, well, Hughes has about 80 more minutes away from Pedersen than with him when the, they're both in the lineup. And it's just like, I think they have that idea in, in their head, but it's like, that should be a real priority because what else do you have going on on the Vancouver yeah, Canucks I mean, all, that you're prioritizing all, instead of this? Also true. It's a, it, it's a really, really bad roster when you get past, like they have five good players spread out mm-hmm. between the team. And then when you get past those five good players, it's it's rough. Yeah, it's it's brutal. And uh, well, at least they have tons of cap space. <laughs> Gee, I can't believe. I mean, I can believe that they kept Jim Benning, but I think it's really stupid that <laughs> they <laughs> kept Jim Benning. Anyway, that's their problem. So, are we ready to move to number three, part two? Yes. And coming in at number three, part two for the New Jersey Devils and brother of the foregoing. Center Jack Hughes. Yes, uh, so the Hughes brothers are tied for number three, which uh, is, is very serendipitous. And we, I swear we did not try and make that happen. Um, so, Fulman, you alluded to a guy uh, at the start of the pod who moved up a lot. Jack Hughes is that guy. He is that guy. And this is another example of what we were talking about. He came in as an 18-year-old for the Devils, another very poor team, and he had a rough season. And everyone was like, oh, I don't know about this Jack Hughes character. And his 19-year-old season was much better. And he looks back on track. And I think he's going to be a first-line center. Um, He, like his brother, is a great skater. And he's a great playmaker. And I think that he can be the offensive sort of focus for a lineup. You know, we talked about Suzuki as, you know is it good enough if he's your best offensive player? Whereas I think once Hughes settles in, it will be just fine that Hughes is their best offensive player. 
And, you know, especially they've got Nico Hishier, who's also a good young player who can be a bit more defensive oriented. But I think that that's a really enviable one-two punch that they've got going there now. Really, nice It really mix. is. Yeah. yeah. And the thing with Hughes, um, with Jack Hughes, that's going to be interesting, is it's kind of the McKinnon thing. If this guy learns to finish, mm. you know, we're in trouble. Like, the league's in trouble. Yeah, both people are going to get hurt. His, <laughs> yeah, both his rookie and sophomore years, um, his finishing was pretty eh. Right, at least overall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of that's driven by five or not five on five by power play finishing, and I'd be interested to see, you know, uh, about kind of how what are the types of shots he's getting on the power play in particular, because you know, as we know, XG can be a little bit weird on power plays because you can exert more control over uh, the situation you're in, and as a result. Um, you know, uh, the player positioning matters more. XG can be missing things when it comes to the power play. But, yeah, I mean, if he can convert consistently above his, uh, above his expected goals, which is what you expect from most players taken that high in the draft, it's going to be really, he's going to be a really phenomenal and really complete offensive player. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, he's, also, I mean, he's, a, he's a very fun player to watch as well. I, I wanted to, to make that point. Very smooth skating, good, in the, good with the puck in the neutral zone, you know, great zone entry guy. And, yeah, like he, you, you can tell when you watch him. It's like, okay, yeah, this guy has, like, a really, really great mental map of where everyone is on the ice at all times because there's these situations where kind of these uh, awkward situations that don't come up that often in, in, in hockey that sometimes he'll get himself into, that all players will get himself into. And instinctively, he knows and makes where people are and makes good plays, even in situations where it's not necessarily like practice or something he's seen before. It's just he has an intuition and an understanding of, okay, here's the situation that I can see, and that means this is what's going to happen to the rest of the ice, and here's how I can take advantage of that. And that's, that's really, really cool to see. That's, yeah. that's a player archetype who I love. That I love. Yeah, and it's uh, wild for those of us who grew up with the Devils being a tedious, evil empire that would trap and suffocate every game to death. That they have some cool young offensive players. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. There's actually something else that I wanted to remark on, uh, just because it's staggering to me as someone who looks at you know cat friendly and and sheets like that in the long term outlook. And we will eventually do a Team Outlook pod, as we do every summer. Uh, you know, we'll look at all the teams. Do you know how many players that the Devils have signed for at least three years? One. Uh, <laughs> really? Nico is it his year? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. They have zero forwards signed that long. They have zero... Sorry, besides him. They have zero defensemen. They have zero goalies signed that long. Um, they will be paying... Corey Schneider's buyout for three seasons, but that doesn't really count. They have, like, this wide-open field uh, of, of cap space. Now, they're the Devils. They don't tend to be a big contender for free agents. And that also means they don't have a lot of very good players. You know? They have a ton of young RFAs right now, and they're going to have to make a bunch of decisions about them. But it's really kind of staggering how this team has basically... He's sure. And then Jack Hughes, who they will hang on to. And then just like a wide open field. So as it is, they're very bad still. But it would be very interesting if you're a GM to come in. And, and I mean, 
Tom Fitzgerald is not coming in. He's been there. But, like, he can do pretty much whatever he wants. He may be the most free GM in the league in some ways. because he has Aside from Ron like, Francis, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. But Francis will probably be more encumbered the day after the expansion draft than Fitzgerald yeah. will be. And I really Yeah, no, that's like, true. It's just wild. So, like, the Devils could do anything. They could languish in the basement for years. Or they could suddenly spring up, you know? Yeah. So, uh, just one other note. So, I've Mm -hmm. taken the train here from uh, central New Jersey to New York a couple times, and it actually takes you right by, right through Newark, um, Mm -hmm. which is where the the Devils play, and actually right by their stadium. Um, So, I can't say I've really spent much time in Newark. I've, you know, all told, I've probably spent 10 minutes, all of it on a train, so not even really in the city. Um, Man, it's a really ugly stadium. (laughs) Is it really gross? It's, it's, yeah, it's just not, it's not that pretty. (laughs) <laughs> um, and it's like it, like the surrounding area also isn't very pretty and this has like really no bearing on anything whatsoever I just wanted to point that out you know what when these things impress themselves upon us that's what podcasts are for to express <laughs> those thoughts yes so moving to number two on defense with the Dallas Stars it's Miro Heiskanen yes we talked so about before. yeah we talked about Heiskanen before um, he- Heiskanen is of course you know tangentially Rated to the pod as as a supporting member in the Essa Lindell theory, <laughs> uh, of, which, which is that yeah I mean I have to say it again of course you do do it uh, well yeah so Essa Lindell theory is is the idea that like the third defenseman on any team that goes deep will get a lot of uh, unwarranted praise because people want to sound smart and the way you sound smart is by praising the third defenseman you can't praise any of the elite forwards because they're going to score too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Habs notwithstanding. Uh, you can't praise either of the top two defensemen because that's too obvious. They're playing the top pair and they're succeeding, obviously, because otherwise the team likely wouldn't be where they are. So you have to go to the third defenseman. Right. Yeah, I right? really so, believe this theory. It's very strong. It, it's incredibly, you know, half-baked because I think, <laughs> you know, I think even if the way I described it, even Lindell doesn't necessarily uh, follow that because he actually plays first pair minutes. Mm. Right, like, like realistically, he he he's the partner to John Klingberg. He he is the you know their second defenseman. Heiskanen is their third, anchoring kind of a second pair. But when you think of the stars, you think of Klingberg and Heiskanen as their two best defensemen. You think of Lindell as the third most prominent guy, even though he probably plays you know the most or second most minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Lindell is one of those guys whose fancy stats look awful, uh, and you know pro- probably make him out to be a worse player than he is frankly, because I'm guessing a lot of the time, I'm guessing it's like comparing him to minutes where Klingberg and Heiskanen maybe play together or where Klingberg is like unleashed offensively specifically. Um, but anyways, this isn't about Essa Lindell. This is about Miro Heiskanen. Yes. Uh, and, and not just his relation to, to Essa Lindell theory, even though it's, you know, one of the foremost academic contributions of our time. <laughs> Miro Heiskanen is really, really, really good. I, I, I love watching Heiskanen play. I think he is... Just so smooth, right? That's the word that I, I think of when I watch him. He's just the looks like a player who is really unperturbed by essentially anything going on. As a young player, his defensive results are quite impressive, and he had a bit of a down year this year. A lot of the stars did, and you know, certainly part of that could be the fact that COVID basically ran rampant through their entire roster at some point, mm-hmm. and they had to play a ridiculous schedule on the back end of the year. But, you know, I, based on his track record at this point, I'm kind of quite comfortable having him here. And I think he could have even been number one. Yeah, it was tenable. 
And I think it really stands out how hard it is to be a really good defensive defenseman at, in this age bracket, because count how many others there are on this list or that we even voted for. It's him. You know, Quinn Hughes also made the list, but he's an offensive defenseman par excellence. You know, some of this is, I'm sure, coaching opportunity, but I don't buy that all coaches are idiots. I think Heiskanen is just really good defensively and has learned the game well. And I really envy that. I do think, you know, this year on the Leafs, we got a... I mean, it wasn't the first time, but we got a bit of a taste of how reassuring it is to have just, like, a good player back there. We already had it a bit with Jake Muzzin, and we got it more with TJ Brody. You know, guys like that who can just steady the ship at a really high level on a consistent basis, those are valuable players. And I think Heiskanen and Klingberg is a really, really enviable um, one-two on defense to have those guys to build around. Even if, you know, you have Essel and Dell there to be a point of theoretical discussions. I, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself because I said some of this last year, but Heiskanen is, as much as any player on this list, I really look at him and think, God, I wish we had Miro Heiskanen. Yeah, yeah, he's not much. Very, very, very good, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a common gift. One player. of the other, yeah, one of the other things with with Heiskanen, um, he is he play his role in the power play is actually kind of interesting because he is you know significantly more active than a lot of defensemen off the power play. Hmm. Uh, he he kind of plays the right side, kind of like the right point, but he he has the freedom to to creep in. And, in fact, uh, has scored a goal for like really in tight on the power play. That's interesting. So, yeah, it, it's not something you would, you know, naively, uh, that you would naively uh, expect. And I, they do, I believe they do spend, on their, on their top power play, they do have both Klingberg and Heiskanen, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so Heiskanen kind of plays a, a, a role that is unusual for defensemen because most teams don't have two defensemen on power plays at this point in, in, in the NHL. Um, I don't know how good Dallas's power play is generally. It, from the stats, it seems okay. Uh, but it, it's kind of interesting to see. Heisenden doesn't have much finishing talent. From that, that, at least that hasn't been on display throughout his, his time in the league so far. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if they're, they're leaving a bit of value on the table in part because... Um, you know, you, you kind of feel obliged in some sense to have your elite defenseman on, on your power play. It's a status thing as much as anything else. Uh, but, you know, it's an interesting kind of quirk of, of his usage, uh, generally yeah. speaking. The they thing with noting is... They power play this year. Yeah, so maybe there's something to it. Um, the other thing worth noting is his regular partner is Jamie Alexiak, uh, who is, I think, you know, fine, but mm. also certainly not concerned with uh, the possibility that or that Heiskanen's getting carried. I, I, like, I, th- I think based on that, it's like, okay, we're, we can be reasonably confident based on his track record and, you know, Alexiak's track record that Heiskanen is doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this pairing. Yeah, that seems likely. You know, it's possible they're a very nice fit. I think at mm-hmm. their best, Muzzin and Hall have had a bit of that going on, but by the same token, yeah. I don't think anyone's under much, many illusions that Justin Hall is carrying that pairing. You know, well, I mean, I did see a tweet that referred to him at one point as the best as the best shutdown defender in Canada. I 
come on, man. <laughs> I remember when we saw that, we were like, that's not a that's not a belief that you can sustain after five minutes of watching them. Well, and it's like the like um, Muslim's right there. Yeah, <laughs> he's, probably, he's, on, he's on the ice at the same time. Yeah, like you literally so, like, look at that pairing and you're like, oh, as a person who can keep track of multiple objects in my field of vision, Jake Muslim is clearly the better defenseman on this pairing. And that's no disrespect to Justin Hall, who I, I like fine. But, like, come on. And so, by the same token, I think, yeah, Miro Heiskanen is clearly doing the lion's share of the work on that one. Yes. Um, uh, okay, so should we, should we finish up with our, our number one on the list? Yes. And so, repeat listeners will probably know what's coming. He was number two on our list last year. Number one graduated. And so now he's got first place all to himself. But at right wing for the Carolina Hurricanes, it's Andre Sveshnikov. And, yeah, he's, you know, man, he's, he's really good. good. <laughs> he, he's really good. I don't know if you've heard. Yes. Yeah. Um, really the only concern, as ever with every Carolina player, is will he finish effectively? Mm. Um, he yeah. had a bad rookie year by, shooting, by finishing, I believe. An average second year. And then bad again this year. So, you know, two out of three years were, were a struggle in terms of finishing. Um, I, I, you know, we're getting far away from his draft class at this point. But, like, I just watching him and remembering what I, what I read about him when he was drafted, I, don't, I just think he has the skill to finish. And I just think mm-hmm. it hasn't happened yet. Um, maybe there's a bit of that Brady Kachuk thing where, you know, he, he's a hard-nosed guy, gets to the front of the net, creates a lot of offensive chances from in tight. Maybe some of those are... Um, not as good as XG views them. But I, I just have trust that he is eventually going to finish well. And when he does it, it he's, you know, has the chance to make uh, an all an NHL, like, all-star team. I, I don't mean, like, the mid-season NHL all-star team. I mean the NHL all-star team at the end of the year. Yeah, where they pick the best player at each position for the mm-hmm. top two. Yeah. Um, I do also want to make a distinction. We've talked about a couple of wingers who get to the front of the net and have great chances, and then don't finish on them at the expected rate. But by hockey vis, Brady Kachuk is minus 15% in finishing. Yes. Svechnikov this year was minus four. Yeah, there's a cataclysmic difference between them. Like Brady Kachuk is um, maybe the worst finisher in the league if you take that at face value. Whereas um, Svechnikov is merely bad at it this year. Yeah. And, you, you know, being not quite as good as expected, but on a great volume of chances... It's still a pretty nice combination when it comes down to it. So, like, mm-hmm. he's already doing the thing at a high level. It's just, as so often on this list, the question is, where is the ceiling? And I think, we both think, he's got all of the pieces of, like, a top five winger in the world. If he can put them together. It's not guaranteed that he will, but the size, the ability to drive play, to get to dangerous areas, the hand-eye coordination, the toughness under pressure, it's all there. And it's already operating at a high level. Yeah, and he has, like, the nastiness, too. Yeah. Right? Like, he, he's no wallflower at all. If you, you know, I, in playoff series, opposing fans despise him by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, he, he, re- he has absurd potential. Really, really, really high-end potential. Um, yeah. And the finishing really is the only question mark, I think, at this point. So, there's... A lot of room to to grow there for him, and you know he, he's yeah. he's twenty one. He's very young still. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons we do this list, is no one on this list is hitting their peak in age by even the most youth-oriented description. They all have runway ahead of them to keep getting better. And with how good Svechnikov already is and the skill set that he's already displayed, I think there's abundant reason to expect him to. Like, I think that, you know, if he goes up another level, that's that's a dazzling thing for the Hurricanes. Um, right, and yeah. I think a huge... The Hurricanes were in a very good spot, in part because of the pretty clean cap uh, sheet, generally speaking. Um, but another big part of it is, like, they have a guy who has the upside to take that stratospheric leap into the league's elite. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's no guarantee that he will. Right? But it, it's it's possible. Right? And, and to be fair to the Stars, they have the same thing with Heiskanen. Like, Heiskanen could win the Norris next year, and we wouldn't be like, oh, wow, that came out of nowhere. We'd be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know what? I, that, in hindsight, that's pretty understandable. Right? Because he's very good. Yeah. You know, my only question with the Hurricanes now is if they let Dougie Hamilton go, and that seems like the way the wind is blowing, although, you know, he hasn't signed anywhere else yet either, obviously. I do wonder how much that hurts them. Because I do think that he was mm-hmm. their best defenseman. So Yeah, I do as well. But, I mean, if yeah. any team is set up to kind of just absorb the loss of a really, really top-level defenseman, it, it, it'd be Carolina. That's true. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think Carolina now is probably really, or should be really thinking, okay, we're knocking on the door of the top of the NHL. We've got players like Owen Svechnikov who are exceptional and quite young. We should be thinking, now we make a move. I, I do want to mention, both Svechnikov and Heiskanen need new contracts. They're both RFAs right now. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that may be a factor in them letting Hamilton walk and all sorts of other decisions. But I, I suspect they'll both be treated as core pieces by their teams and re-signed for term. So. Yes. Um, before we finish up, mm-hmm. do you think it's worth kind of very briefly discussing how these players relate to uh, kind of the Leafs young stars when they were in the same position, you know, just for a couple minutes? Yeah. And we, we were talking about this, you know, obviously this is a list with no Leafs on it. With no Leafs who, to be honest, seriously threatened it. Like yeah, like we, of had, gave... we had Sandine and Robertson like, on the list of players to vote on, but I don't think either of us put them in, the t- in our top 15. Yeah, and I hope that it's clear why, frankly. You know, <laughs> like, you look at this list, and I'm sorry, but those players are not on a par with these players, and that's how yeah, it is. Yeah, there, there is no case for either of those players to be on the list or, or even that close, right? Because they haven't mm-hmm. done enough in the NHL. Yeah. And you know, it is what it is. But if you turn back the clock to 2017, when the Leafs would have had three prominent players eligible for this list and Matthews, Marner and Nylander, I mean, all of them would be contending for this list. First of all, if they were yeah. the ages that they are now on this list, they would all make it, I think. Like, they would all bump guys off. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, I, w- I would certainly I mean, have so, Matthews tops. Yeah. No yeah I, I think, yeah, like, if, if we have Matthews at age, what well, he, w- he would have been 19 after the 2016-17 season. Uh, mm-hmm. Marner would have just turned 20. They would, I think, be, like, one and two or, like, one and three on this list. 
right? And this yeah. is, a, to be very clear, this is in a world where we're just transporting them at that age to now. So we're not saying against their peers at the time. If we actually did this list in 2017, um, they wouldn't be because Connor McDavid was, tw- was still 21. Mm-hmm. And right? at uh, that and- time, Eichel also would have been in there, probably had a Marner. Although that, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't rule uh, out arguments, but I would have had Eichel ahead of them. Yeah, I, w- I would. I would. My one, two, three probably would have been um, McDavid, Eichel, Matthews, and then, or sorry, sorry, McDavid, Matthews, Eichel. I'd have Matthews above mm-hmm. Eichel, and then I'd probably put Marner. Yeah, and, and um, then Nylander gets then, in towards the bottom of the list. Yes, and and then you can see again how much stronger the list was at that time than it is now, right? Because again, Port William Nylander put Port twenty-one-year-old William Nylander to right now, and I think they're like I I, I would find it hard to see an argument where, like, Nick Suzuki is so much better than 21-year-old William Nylander. I would yeah, view the lowest I would put him as overall players. Yeah. Yeah. So, Whereas, you know, yeah, if we I, actually I mean, did this list in 2017, Nylander would probably be, like, 8th to 10th, maybe not even on the list, depending on how you view other people. I think he would be on the list, but we haven't done the exercise, so. Yeah, it, it is just... It is really striking, and, you know, obviously it's soured a little bit with the lack of playoff success since. But the Leafs had a trio of rookies that was incredibly rare in NHL history. They really were just blessed with a spectacular run of talent hitting at the same time. And it's unfortunate that, you know, more hasn't come of it. But that was a really special um, stretch for them in terms of talent coming in. So, yeah, it, it is interesting just to look around the league and see, you know, who's coming up, who's worth talking about, who's significant um, in the future. And it, it also helps you ground maybe your perception of our own prospects because, mm-hmm. you know, I think if you ask Leafs fans on the street whether Sandine maybe or, or Robertson could make this list, they might not be a categorical no. And when you start doing this and you look at how many good young players there are, they're not close. It doesn't mean they're bad, but they're not close. Uh, so it can be useful just to learn about some new players and maybe learn where players are. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I think that just about does it for us. Um, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Foleman. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon.